I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. If we imagine our lives in the past couple years as a play, COVID-19 has been the main character, whether we like it or not. It was the mysterious, shadowy figure at the very start of the pandemic. We didn't really know what it was, but we were scared of it. Then it became a tyrannical villain. It confined us to our homes, separated us from our loved ones, and caused unimaginable loss and devastation in households across the globe. Enter stage left, vaccines and growing immunity in our population. COVID-19 then became a taunting kind of bad guy. Just when we think we're a few steps ahead of it, the virus foils our plans over and over again with every shape-shifting mutation from alpha to Omicron. Now we've reached the choose-your-own-adventure part of the pandemic. Everyone has decided for themselves how big a role the virus will play in our individual lives. But there's one undeniable characteristic of COVID-19, no matter how you've cast it. It's remarkably relentless and smart. Today on Fifth Emission, Chronicle Health reporter Aaron Alday joins me to talk about just that, the character evolution of COVID-19 and the way that it's been able to masterfully dodge some of our safety measures and scientific progress. What does our future look like now that we know we're dealing with one of the most infectious human pathogens on the planet? How is that impacting the work of scientists and researchers? And most importantly, will we ever get ahead of COVID-19? Aaron, some big questions here. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me back. So Aaron, a defining characteristic of COVID-19 is that it has mutated so many times in a relatively short period of time. How have scientists and researchers compared it to other viruses? Yeah, I think that's a really kind of interesting topic and question. And the the truth is, in some ways, we it's hard to compare because we've never, in all of human history, which is fascinating to me, we've never had an opportunity to study a virus that is at this at this level, at this kind of genomic, you know, basic foundational DNA level, to study a virus and to study how it evolves in this very early period of human contact, right? So when it just makes that leap from animals to humans, and it's sort of adapting to humans, we've never been able to look at that before. And so I think there sort of has been this, this, kind of confusing messaging um, around COVID where at the one at the one level we hear that it doesn't mutate very rapidly. There are other viruses that like HIV is well known as mutating much more rapidly than mm-hmm. SARS-CoV-2. But SARS-CoV-2, we're seeing a lot more sort of variation partly because of that initial introduction to humans, but also just because it's so explosive. We have so many cases. I mean, just just tens of millions, you know, hundreds of millions of cases around the world that it has all this opportunity to mutate. So even though the actual virus itself doesn't mutate that quickly, the kind of evolutionary impact of that has been greater because it has so much more opportunity to to evolve. And we've heard a lot about how the virus has changed during the course of the pandemic. Explain for me again, why is the evolution concerning? How does that impact how we move in our day-to-day lives? So I think it's concerning in a couple of ways. Um, And it's concerning on the most basic level in that, you know, it is – it's just becoming comfier in humans. So it's just becoming more adapted to us, which just makes it easier. That's why it's becoming so much easier to spread amongst us. So on the one kind of real basic level, 
it's just gotten really, really good at spreading from person to person. But the other issue is because it changes so frequently, it's made it really hard for us to stay on top of it with our vaccines because it's now at this point where it's starting to kind of mutate around our immunity. It's it's kind of out there. It's living amongst us. It's I don't want to sort of anthropomorphize a virus because, you know, it's not thinking, but but just on an evolutionary mm-hmm. kind of level, it is changing around our immunity. So it sort of senses, you know, what our immunity is, either from infection or from vaccination. And it is now being pressured, kind of getting the selective pressure to choose mutations that let it get around to let it evade that immunity. So that's really what we're seeing now, which is just, it is just making it really so much harder for us to control. Scientists and researchers have been mapping the virus's genome. What exactly are they looking for at this point? So what they do when they kind of map, I mean, they they get an entire sort of blueprint of, of the genome of the virus. And in that blueprint will be I don't know, dozens um, of mutations every single time. Most of those mutations don't mean anything. Um, They're either just they don't have any impact on the virus whatsoever. They're just sort of a glitch, like a typo in the code, and they have no impact. Sometimes they'll be negative. They'll actually make the virus sort of less able to survive and make it not even able to replicate, kind of kill the virus. But then you get those occasional ones that actually give it, you know, some sort of trait that makes it perform better. And then it keeps choosing that one and selecting it. And that's how we get a new variant. So mostly what we're looking for are those mutations, those little kind of typos that actually have impact, that actually are meaningful. And so we're always sort of on the lookout for those mutations that are going to give it an advantage. And if we see one a mutation that's shown up multiple times, and now we've seen enough of this that if like a new variant shows up and it has a particular mutation, we know what that means and we know what that's going mm-hmm. to do for that variant. So what have we learned so far about COVID-19 mutations? Which kinds are the most consequential for us? Yeah, so that's really interesting to me because it just sort of gives you a little peek at how a virus does sort of evolve over time. So what we saw was right out of the gate, it just needed to be good at transmitting from human to human. This was a virus that as far as we know, had lived in some sort of animal population, probably bats for some unknown period of time. So very early on, it was just looking for ways that it could spread a little bit easier from human to human. And then over time, it was leaning towards mutations that let it do that faster and easier. And so very early on, I think in the first spring or summer of 2020, early in the pandemic, it got one key mutation that that people refer to as Doug. Mm. One of the scientists I talked to described it to me as putting a door jam in there. And it sort of allowed Mm. for this door that is sort of usually a shut and needs to be opened kind of manually anytime the virus infects a cell. Instead of doing that manual opening, it set it up so that door is always open. Mm -hmm. Somebody kind of I talked to called it like an elegant mutation that just was so simple but gave it so much more access to our cells. And that early on was a game changer. It allowed it to go from sort of iffy human-to-human contact to like, no, it's sort of like all comers can just, you know, infect anything at once. And then since then, in the the second year of the pandemic, it developed all these mutations that let it spread much faster, which is where we saw alpha and epsilon. We saw delta, as we all know. And then omicron, of course, was just off the charts. Um, And each of the subvariants has been spreading faster. So that's what we really saw is this emphasis on speed of transmission and how many people could be infected. Now what we're seeing in this sort of third year of the pandemic, when we have so much immunity, either from infection or vaccination or both in a lot of people, is the virus is really leaning into now immune evasion. We're seeing more of that with each of sort of the variants that arise. It's not completely escaping. We still get quite a bit of protection from 
the virus, especially with severe illness, you know, and we we probably will retain some of that. It's really hard to know how much immune evasion there will be. But it just it definitely tells us that we need to do a better job now, sort of on our side of things, coming up with better immune tools to, to fend this thing off. So it sounds like we can blame Doug for immune evasion. Is that right? No, Doug, we have to blame for the transmission. Doug sort of opened that door. Yeah, exactly. I don't know that we know exactly. We have sort of some hints on which mutations give it that sort of immune evasion advantage. I don't know if they have clever names yet for those mutations. (laughs) More with Aaron Alday after a quick break. Have we hit peak infectiousness yet with COVID-19? And how is the virus's relentless ability to evade immunity impacting new vaccine development? We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Erin, before the break, we were talking about how good COVID-19 has been at becoming more and more infectious. But when will it stop? Have we hit the peak yet? The short answer is we don't know. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I think at this stage in the game, everyone I talked to is super hesitant to, you know, put down any sort of guarantees. So I've had a lot Mm -hmm. of people say, I think it's got to be close to peak infectiousness. But they kind of said that before Omicron. I don't think it's quite surpassed measles, but it's very close to. And measles is literally the most infectious human pathogen on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I ask folks, you know, well, what what are the limiters here? And and people can't really say. It's not like there's something, you know, math-wise or, or science-wise that says, you know, this is the limit to how infectious something can be. At some point, it the infectiousness, how infectiousness, how infectious it is, becomes a problem. And it can make other aspects of the virus sort of more challenging. So it may be kind of easier to spread, but it's it has a harder time replicating. So how does immunity in humans, whether that's through being infected or getting vaccinations, how has that impacted the virus's ability to evolve and mutate? Right. So, you know, as I said, this this virus is now evolving around this this selective pressure. So what we have is just a soup of human immunity. And it's really complicated at this point because it's not just infections and vaccinations that that we're talking about. It's multiple infections. It's, you know, it may depend on, it It does depend on which variant you are infected with. So Delta infection will give you different immunity than Omicron infection, than Epsilon mm-hmm. infection. So there's all different kinds of infection. There's great variation in vaccination, which vaccine people got, how many shots they got, how many boosters they've had, how long ago they had a booster, right? So there's like a whole like chaotic soup of, of immunity that this virus is now just I mean, we still have huge numbers in, of infections. So it's, you know, spreading wild, wildly in sort of this, this you know, environment of all this sort of immunity. And it's selecting now mutations and mutations that kind of form that give it any sort of advantage that lets it escape all of that kind of immunity or get kind of out of that soup. That's what's going to kind of thrive. That version, that variant is what's going to sort of climb out of, you know, all this transmission and then be you know, presumably the next one to take off. So I think that's what we're starting to see with these latest two variants, this BA.4 and BA.5. BA.5, they're saying, is is definitely the most immune evasive variant that we have seen so far. And that's because it's springing up in this, this immune soup. So how does the 
ability of the virus to evade immunity, how has that impacted the development of new vaccines and boosters? It's made it really challenging. Um, You know, I know that both Pfizer and Moderna have said, you know, one of the advantages of their vaccines is that they can be easily updated. Um, And so the thinking is they can be updated and sort of you know, come up with a new recipe, add a new variant and put it out into the public within, say, six months. Well, it's showing, you know, what we're finding is this thing is spinning out variants still so quickly that six months is almost too Mm -hmm. long. And already we're kind of seeing signs that original Omicron doesn't really offer, if you were infected with it, that, you know, the mutations in there that that they doesn't offer great protection against the subvariants. So both Moderna and Pfizer have put out early information that says that their boosters that were designed around Omicron do seem to be, you know, they're showing that they're effective at, pre- at preventing transmission with some of these subvariants. You know, this is really early data. This is company data that they've put to their own investors. We haven't really had this put, you know, before the CDC or the FDA or kind of, you know, external scientists to really validate it. So I think I think there's a lot of people that are kind of skeptical of how well those boosters are going to do against, you know, whatever variant is circulating in the fall. And right now you and I are just talking about, you know, the sub the latest subvariants of Omicron. We have no idea what's going to be out there circulating, taking off in the fall or or the winter. So yeah, it's made it really, really hard to design to kind of update our vaccines so that they're better suited to whatever is circulating in real time because it changes so frequently now. And the main comfort for at least vaccinated people at this point is that likely you can avoid serious illness and uh, hospitalization if you're vaccinated. And some people have just resigned to the idea of okay, if I get a breakthrough infection, at least it will likely be a mild case. Some health experts like Dr. Walker, for example, from UCSF says, you know, we shouldn't adopt that kind of mentality. But at least at this point, I'm trying to find a silver lining. Can we be more confident that we will continue to evade serious illness or disease? Yeah, I think so. I mean, personally speaking, I, I, you know, I have uh, you know, two shots and one booster, and I feel pretty. I, I feel well protected against severe illness. I don't feel well protected at all against transmission. Even you know, having had COVID myself, like what a month mm-hmm. or six weeks ago, I feel like that has already waning, and I, I could be vulnerable again. You know, already or soon. You know, there was some concern because two shots with Pfizer and Moderna, we did see a waning of protection against severe illness. Um like last uh, last fall that was really starting to be an issue, which was why they really pushed the boosters. I think the thinking is probably that this is just, it was maybe a three-shot regimen and maybe three shots or four shots, you know, if you're older, will be good enough to kind of maintain a durable protection against severe illness. But that, you know, we're keeping obviously a really close eye on that. I'm very encouraged by the fact that we have so many cases right now. This surge, the spring surge has just been insane. Mm-hmm. But we're seeing very low hospitalization rates comparatively. So even lower than we did in the winter Omicron surge, which probably shows that the people who got Omicron and then were reinfected are, you know, they're, they're getting some sort of added protection against severe illness from that. But we can't be reassured that long COVID still isn't a threat, right? Not entirely. I think there is some encouraging news that vaccines do help at preventing long COVID. But the long COVID question, it's its sort of baffling to me how much we still don't know about it. You know, we're three mm-hmm. years into this. 
Um, you see a lot of reports that are kind of all over the place, like anywhere from a third to, you know, a tenth, you know, of, of cases they say result in long COVID. But that's a huge range. We know or we suspect that some variants are more likely to, to lead to long COVID than others, but we don't have good data on that. And, you know, I think we both know of people who have had long COVID and were mm-hmm. fully, fully vaccinated, were as vaccinated as you can get. So mm-hmm. that is definitely that's that's a huge outstanding question. And it certainly should be on people's mind. Um, and the other thing is, you know, and I think this is important, is there's not really evidence that that multiple infections that your chances of long COVID goes down with each one. In right. fact, there's some signs that say that it might actually increase with each reinfection. <laughs> that's a lovely thought, I know. <laughs> but, you know, that's I've seen some data that say that each reinfection, it's not, even if you maybe get milder disease, that you may be at more risk each time for long-term consequences. So mm-hmm. there still is very good reason to to avoid this, whether you've never had it before or have had three previous cases, you should still be trying not to get COVID. Erin, every conversation with you feels like a reality check, but I appreciate it so much. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me again. Erin Alday is a health reporter for The Chronicle. Find her story about COVID-19's evolution as a virus, along with her other pandemic coverage, on sfchronicle.com and The Chronicle app. Thanks to King Kaufman for the edits and to you for listening.